0: Let's go ahead and look to our copy of the Word of God this morning to the book of Second Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If uh, you want to use the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 428. And so Second Chronicles chapter 7 or uh, page uh, 428 in your in the Bible in the pew in front of you. And let's go ahead and stand this morning as we read from the word of the Lord if you're able and willing to do so. And you guys can follow along as I, as I read aloud. And this is the Lord talking. He says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this promise that was given to Israel so long ago. And while, Lord, we mourn that it is a promise that they did not, uh, that they did not take you up on, Lord, at the same time, we rejoice that that was always in your plan to bring Christ to the world and to bring salvation to the world through him. And so this morning, Father, as we open up these words and we open up these uh, thoughts and um, these expositions, I pray that you would move me out of the way and that you would uh, help me to speak with clarity, with conviction, and also with compassion. Lord, that your word will go forth and that you will do in the hearts of your people what only you can do. We pray that you would move me aside and that you would minister to all of us your grace through your word this morning. It is in your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. And so this is a very uh, common passage that is used for American holidays. I'm sure that you have heard this passage preached uh, on July the 4th and other national holidays as well. I'll be honest with you, uh, I kind of struggle to make uh, sermons that are based on American holidays. I, I don't know if other pastors uh, struggle with that, but I always have. And And I will tell you, uh, one of my first July 4th sermons... Uh, to be honest with you, I wasn't actually going to preach anything to do with July the fourth, but uh, I ministered at a church that was literally right across the street from Fort Carson in Colorado Springs, and so I knew I had to do so. And so, um, and so anyway, so I, guys, I'm, i I kid you not, it was it was Thursday, and I didn't have a text, I didn't have a sermon title, I didn't have a sermon period. I had no idea. What I was going to do, and and uh, and Kim, my my assistant was saying, the bulletins have to be printed. I need your information. Thankfully, Mark never has to do that anymore. <laughs> and so, uh, so anyway, um, and guys, honestly, I decided I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I am going to get out a concordance, and I'm going to find every. Reference to the word freedom in the Bible, put them in some kind of logical order and make a honest to goodness topical sermon. And guys, I kid you not, it took me about 10 minutes to write that sermon. Uh, it was not a good sermon. And I thought... I will just, I will just kind of get through this one and I'll figure out how to do this a little better. And so, so anyway, so that Sunday um, I was in, I was in uh, getting ready for church and I knew I had an egg of a sermon, the worst sermon to this day that I've ever written. And I'm just kind of waiting for it to start. And, uh, and one of my elders walks up to me and says, by the way, uh, John is here and I said, uh, oh, okay, you know, cause my worship leader's name was John and I kinda looked up and he was standing right there. I didn't think anything of it. And so I get up to get announcements with possibly the worst sermon I'm ever about to preach and I look up and guys sitting a head and shoulders above everybody else. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention that particular elder, he was John MacArthur's brother-in-law. And guess who was in my church that morning? John MacArthur, <laughs> and I'm about to preach what I know is the worst sermon I have ever written to my hero, <laughs> John MacArthur, and I thought, no, and I was so upset, and I was like, Lord, I will never, I will never do this again. I understand I've sinned, and you've taught me a very valuable lesson, and he was very gracious, and um and he bought uh, that year, he actually paid my entire way to go to Shepherd's conference. Apparently, the sermon was that bad. He was like, <laughs> he was like, "You need all the help you can get." And so uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, so hopefully today's will be a little better than that. But uh, this is a passage that we often look to whenever we whenever we talk about um, the, our nation and really all the trouble that we in. I don't know that you can really look out in our nation and say that there is not just a bunch of chaos going on right now. I read and I read, an, I read a, a, a piece this week, um, and I don't know who the source was. You know how these unnamed sources go sometimes. Sometimes they're just looking for their fifteen minutes of fame, but. Um, I read a piece and they were saying that uh, one of the reporters that was in this room, in the strategy room with the president, they were saying, well, w- well, which problem do you guys feel that's insurmountable that you're working on a plan was? And the response was, uh, take your pick. And so it was it, just a lot, everybody is recognizing that that we are a nation in trouble right now. And when we do that, it's, it's very easy to go and look for just about any answer that we can find to ask ourselves what is the solution for the difficulties that we are facing in our nation? And needless to say, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a verse that often comes up, all right? Um, and so, beloved, my, my hope this morning is that we will encourage you to seek Renewal, to seek renewal, but we've got to define it because uh, let me let me just kind of take care of this off the bat. Second Chronicles seven fourteen has absolutely nothing to do with the United States of America. Absolutely nothing. It was a promise that was given to Israel. It was a promise, actually, we're gonna see that it is a response to Solomon's prayer. Whenever he prayed for the dedication of the temple, this is God's response to his prayer. And it is a response that God is promising the nation of Israel that if, when I bring these curses to you, and notice he says when, not if, he says when I bring these things to you, if you will turn back to me in this way, Then I will respond in this way. And unfortunately, we know through history that that is a promise that Israel never realized. Not completely. Not completely. And so this morning, the question we might ask then is why am I preaching a text that I just told you that has nothing to do with America? Because even though it may not have anything to do with the political nation of the United States of America, on the other hand, it has a lot to say to the American church. And on the other hand, it has a lot to say. There are principles here that, and let's just narrow this down even further. Let's not talk about those out there. We can, we can do that all day long and, and leave the building you know, thinking pretty highly of ourselves. Let's not talk about those in there. Let's talk about us in here and say, what are the principles for Calvary Baptist Church this morning? And even more to the point there, what are the principles for Randy Scott this morning? I heard an old Baptist preacher say one time, if you want to start a revival in your church, here's what you need to do. You need to go out in the middle of nowhere. You need to take a stick and draw a circle in the sand. You need to stand in that circle and lift your arms to God and say, God, please bring revival to this circle. And so if we want to see renewal in our church specifically, we've got to start with ourselves and if we want to see renewal in this community, we've got to start with ourselves. And beloved, even, even though these promises are not for the nation, if we wanna see revival in our nation, we've got to start with ourselves. So is that, is that fair enough? And so let's, let's look at some of these principles. And my hope this morning is to encourage you to seek renewal and not only in our own lives, but in the life of our church also. And so we need to look at a couple of things in this book and ask ourselves uh, what's going on here. And let me just give you some interesting things about the book. The context is simply this, that Solomon has just uh, dedicated the temple and much of the language that you see in this verse is language that is directly taken from Solomon's prayer in chapter six, okay? And so, um, and so it's a direct response to his prayer. But even more than that, let me give you a couple of kind of interesting facts about the book of Chronicles. Is that number one, it is only one book. The, the first and second Chronicles, it was originally one book. And where the, uh, whereas before, you read 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, and you read through uh, 1 Chronicles and Second Chronicles, and you think, well, there's a lot of repeat here. Well, what's happening is that, for, is that the book of Kings was written at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity to explain why they're being punished. Whereas the book of Chronicles was written at the return from the captivity and it's written from a perspective of this is the promise we have from God, that if we will turn back to God, then he will bring us the blessings of the covenant again. But we've got to turn back to God. And because of that Theme of this book that makes this passage, Second Chronicles seven fourteen, this I would suggest is the center of the book. This is the theme of both first and second chronicles. The the, the the question is is that Israel has returned back to the nation, but will they turn back to God? That's the question. And by the way, something else that you might want to just hold in your back pocket because we're going to come back to this is that in the English Bible you see where First and Second Chronicles are, but you may not know this. If you were to read in Hebrew this morning, and if we were using a Hebrew Bible, First and Second Chronicles are actually the last book of the Bible, of the Hebrew Bible. It's the last book you read, and just just hold that in your back pocket because. We're going to come back to that toward the end. And so we can say here then that there are principles in the dedication of the temple that that God is responding to Solomon's prayer. And he's saying that if you will turn back to me, this is how I will respond. And my question to you this morning is are you willing to turn back to the Lord? Are you living in your life in chaos like what we're finding here in verse 13 when, when the drought is there and the famine is there and, the, and all of these things are happening and these are all going back to the covenant curses that, for disobedience that we find in Deuteronomy. And God is saying that when I bring these things because of your disobedience and yet in the midst of that chaos, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn from their ways of wickedness, then I will hear them. And so this morning, when sin and disobedience comes into our lives and the chaos that it brings, God invites us to turn back to him. Turn back to him. Say, Randy, my life feels like chaos right now. Maybe I need to turn back to God. How can I do that? But well, you need to do it with three attitudes that we see this morning. Three attitudes that we need to have when we turn back to God. Number one, and in verse 14, the first part of the verse, we, need, we must turn to God humbly. We must turn to God humbly. And by the way, I didn't really have a PowerPoint this morning, so I would invite you just to kind of follow along. But humbly, he says in verse 14, if my people who are called by my name, now let's stop right there for a moment because I want you to notice something. This is perhaps, in my mind, one of the most comforting aspects of this promise. Because God, even though he says, when I bring these things, in fact, all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter four, he told them that I'm going to scatter you to all the nations. None of this took God by surprise. God knew all of it was coming. And he says, when these things happening, but if my people who are called by my name, I want you to understand that God is still using that covenant language that these are still a people who belong to me. And beloved, do you realize that when God brings chaos into your life because of sin and disobedience, you don't stop being his child? In fact, God disciplines those whom he loves. One of, probably one of the best ways he uses this language is in Exodus chapter three, verses six and seven, when he's calling Moses and he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses, and Mo, watch this, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. But then God says to him, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Beloved, Moses was afraid to look at God, but even in the midst of all of our chaos, God is not afraid to see us. And he sees us where we are. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the disobedience, he sees us. He is the God who sees. And so this is a promise to God's people and any use of this verse must submit to those limitations. This is not a a promise to some vague civic religion that so many of us have a temptation to follow. This is not a promise to some kind of just general idea of sentimentality or whatever, but this is God calling his people to return to him and to return to him humbly. He says, if my people will humble themselves, what does it mean to be humble? Now, we've talked about this before, even here recently. And so just to remind you to be humble doesn't mean that you're degrading to yourself or running yourself down. That, that's really just another kind of pride. But what we're looking at is someone who is, we might refer to it today as self-awareness. In other words, we have a genuine and real understanding of our dependence upon God. That we depend on him for everything. And what's that kind of humility gonna look like? God gives us three ways, three, three ways that it's gonna look. He says, number one, if my people humble themselves, how? If they pray. Prayer is always gonna be the mark of humility. Non-prayer is always gonna be the mark of pride. It's always gonna be the mark of self-sufficiency. Now, there are all kinds of different prayers, different terms that are used for prayers. You'll, you'll find intercessions, you'll find praises, you'll find supplications, entreaties, petitions. Each one of them has kind of its own spin and its own nuance. But, but here, this is just a general term for prayer. It's a catch-all, and it encompasses every kind of prayer, essentially to say that if my people are going to humble themselves, they must have a dependence upon Prayer. Prayer is a mark of a humble person. And without prayer, there's I, I really have a hard time saying that someone is humble if they don't understand their dependence upon God. But number two, it must be pursuit. He says, and they seek my face. When this term is used in Chronicles, it, it carries the idea of intensity and commitment. We Again, we've talked about this before, that you demonstrate what you love by what you pursue. You demonstrate what you love and you demonstrate your desire for what you love by what you are pursuing. And so God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves by praying by seeking my face he's saying my people must pursue me they must pursue god and then he talks about repentance how we turn from our wicked ways our our ways of wickedness and and notice the Uh, personal possessive pronoun there. In other words, my wickedness may not look like your wickedness and your wickedness may not look like someone else's wickedness, but whatever form that takes in our life, that's what needs to change. That yes, there must be a heart change. Yes, there must be a change of, of principles and priorities, but there also must be a change of behaviors. There must be a change of actions. And beloved, I don't know that you can have a true encounter with Jesus Christ and not be changed. I don't know that you can have a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ. Yeah, you may pray a prayer. Yeah, you may walk an aisle. You may, you may feel some emotional tug in your heart or or something like that. But if, if there is no change, then I have a hard time. If there's no fruit, I have a hard time being confident and that conversion. We have to know that that any interaction, turning to God will always result in changed actions. You cannot passionately and devotionally seek God truly and not be transformed. There must be, there will be practical, biblical change in the life. Jesus says, by their fruits, you will know them. And he says that, that, All those who who abide in me will bear fruit. Is it perfect? Of course not, but it will be there. And so, in these verses, we see a sense of urgency, don't we? We see a sense that this is important, that this is absolutely vital there's a, it's like the parable Jesus gives in Matthew 13, the one who found the treasure in the field and he, and he buries the treasure and he goes and, and he sells all he has so that he can, so that he can purchase the field. Can you imagine the kind of urgency he did that with? What if while he's gone, maybe someone else has already trying to buy the field? What if while he's gone, someone else goes in the field and they find the treasure? What if this? What if that? What is this? And you can imagine the kind of urgency that he is, that he is pursuing, purchasing this field so that he can obtain the treasure. That's the kind of urgency that is being brought out in these verses. In the same way, it's understandable that in the nation at the time, because they are being back, brought back from Babylon and they're being presented with this challenge. Are, yes, you are back in the land, but are you going to turn back to God? You can imagine the urgency with, with, with which God is speaking here. That this is absolutely vital, that if you want to be the people of God, it's got to be more than real estate. It's got to be more than a building. It's got to be my people turning to me humbly, prayer, seeking me, and changing their behavior. Urgency is like someone who loses money and desperately trying to find it. Have you ever found a, you ever lost a, I don't know, a $100 bill before or something like that? And Boy, you're tearing up your house, aren't you? Maybe some of you aren't, but I know I am. That, that might as well be $100,000 to me. You're tearing up the house looking for that bill, right? You know, Benjamin's gone. I gotta find him. Ben is my best friend, you know? So you gotta find him, right? Beloved, in the same way, this is the kind of urgency we look for, this kind of humbly turning to God. Are we, are we willing to humble ourselves? What, is, what does your prayer say about your humility? What do your priorities say about what you are pursuing and what, do your, what does your fruit say about your life? That's the questions we need to ask this morning. And if they're telling you the wrong thing, we need to turn back to God. We need to turn back to him humbly, but number two, turn back to God confidently. Confidently. Look what he goes on to say. What happens when we seek, when we turn to God Humbly, what happens, he says that when they do this, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. This invitation to turn back to God comes with a with a confident promise that when God's people turn back to him, God says that when we return to him humbly, when we turn back to him, then these responses will happen. Number one, He will hear us. He says, I will hear from heaven. And once again, this takes us back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, when God told Moses, I have seen my people. Yes, he sees us, but then he goes on to say, I have heard their cries. I have heard their cries. God is a God who hears. In other words, we're not just talking about hearing something like I overheard something the other day, but we're talking about the kind of hearing that prompts action. It's a kind of hearing that prompts a response. That, you know, there are some news you get in your life that is so urgent, that is so vital that you stop everything you're doing and you respond to what you just heard. And that's the kind of hearing that we're referring to here. That God, when he, when he hears, when he sees his people turning back to him, he will respond to us with the same kind of urgency and the same kind of intensity that he is asking us to turn to him. It's attentive hearing. It's exactly what happens. And then what what, what is a prompt? It says that I will forgive their sin he will forgive us. You know what's amazing? This term forgive is there's actually two things about the way this is worded. Number one, the, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but basically he says, I will forgive. That, that I, that personal pronoun, it, it's actually emphatic. In other words, it's in a position in the Hebrew text that, that really draws it out, says that I will forgive forgive. I myself will forgive you. Be like, I don't know, the closest thing we'd have to say today is, uh, uh, well, who was it that, uh, that ate your cheesecake? Him was the guy. You know, something like, just a, just a really draw it out, right? And that's a really poor example because English doesn't work like this, but, but just a really draw it out. It says, I myself will forgive the very God whom we have offended, the very God whom we have trespassed against, the very God whom we have rebelled against, that we have committed high treason against, is the very God that says, if you will come back, I will forgive you. I've used this example before. Can you imagine going? me going up to, uh, uh, I've picked on Stefan before on this illustration, so I won't do it today, but... Can you imagine me walking up to John and just slapping him in the face, right? And then walking over to Grace and saying, Grace, I'm so sorry I hit John. Would you you please forgive me? What good does that do? She's not the one I offended, right? Who's the one I hit? John. Whose forgiveness do I need? John's, right? When you've sinned against God, beloved, when you are eternally guilty against an infinite, eternal of infinite worth and dignity, when you have offended that God, he's the one whose forgiveness you need. Not a priest, not a pope, not anyone else. You need God's forgiveness. And that is exactly what he's offering you that though you have turned against me in the worst way possible, if you will turn back to me, I myself will forgive you. And by the way, that word forgive, the other thing that's interesting is a word that all throughout the Hebrew Bible, how how large is the Old Testament? It's pretty large, right? This word, it only occurs when it's talking about God. We no one else can forgive this way no one else when when the when the when the scribes and the teachers looked at jesus and said he is blaspheming no one can forgive but god alone guess what they're right only god alone can forgive now they were wrong because jesus is god but they were right their theology was right only god can forgive I don't need anyone else's forgiveness more than I need the forgiveness of God. And that is exactly what he's offering. And not only this, he says, in fact, look at, uh, you might just wanna write this down, Isaiah 55, seven. He says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Abundantly pardon. What does that mean? To abundantly pardon. I can think of no better example than Psalm 103. You might wanna write that down. Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. He says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far away is the east from the west? They're untouchable, right? And that is how far God is willing to remove our transgressions from us when we turn to him. Isn't that amazing? Why would you refuse that? And then he will heal their land. And this goes directly back to verse 13. He says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain and command the locusts to devour the land, he says, when you turn back to me, I will heal what has been destroyed by your sin. By your disobedience, the chaos that has been brought in your life, I will bring restoration. I will heal what has been destroyed. One thing to understand about being in the land of Israel was that it was a sign of being in a right relationship with God. It It wasn't the reality, but it was a sign. It was being in the covenant blessings. And God says that when you return back to me, I will restore those covenant blessings to you. Yes, they are still his people, but he will restore them so that they actually experience the goodness and the greatness of those blessings, the blessings of what it is to be God's people. The goodness of God, the greatness of God and everything that he does for us. It's sad that there are Christians walking around today singing songs like Joy Unspeakable and, and all of these great praise courses that speak about being joyful in the Lord and yet there are Christians walking around today and they've never really experienced that. They don't really know what that's talking about. Looks like they got baptized in pickle juice. I mean, they're just sour, you know? I, I mean, it's and, and, and you wonder, where is the joy? Where is the fruit? They've never experienced that. That's sad. That's a sad reality. Where in the world did we get the idea that being holy means that we have to be miserable? You know where it came from? Satan. That's where it came from. Where in the world did God say being holy means that we have to be miserable to everyone else? Came from Satan. That's exactly where it came from. And so the joy that he gives, the covenant blessings, God says, I will restore to you the blessings of living as my people on the earth. They'll enjoy the land and all the promises that come with obedience. And and the point here is not that they lose covenant status, but that they enjoy the blessings of that covenant. And then they enjoy the things that come with it. What is holding you back from turning to God completely. What in the world do you think is worth that? What in the world do you think is worth holding back from God? Is it a lack of confidence in him? Or maybe it's a lack of confidence in his promise. Maybe you're a lack of confidence in his goodness or his willingness to forgive all sin. Maybe you doubt him. Do you realize, beloved, that none of these curses mentioned in verse 13, none of these things that happened in the life of Israel, none of them took God by surprise. All the way back. In fact, turn to Deuteronomy chapter four, just for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter four, all the way back at the formation of the nation, God says, you are not going to obey me and these things are going to happen. He says here in verse four, and I, really uh, chapter four, verses 23 through 31, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but God told Israel before they even came into the land that once they got in, they would forget about him. And notice in verse, uh, let's see, let's look at this here. Verse 27, and, and, and Yahweh will scatter you among the people and you will be left few in number among the nations where Yahweh will drive you. None of this took him by surprise. And what's even more, look at verse 28. He says, and there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. He said that when you are scattered in these lands, you will be completely consumed by their culture. You will completely lose your Jewish identity. And you will completely be consumed by all of the priorities and all of the things that that culture believes. By the way, has that happened to you? Is your faith more defined by our culture than it is by the word of God? Do you have a cultural notion of who God is? Do you have a cultural notion of Christianity versus a biblical notion of Christianity? It's easy easy to do. It's so easy to do. But notice, look what God says in verse 29. But from there, where? All those places where they're scattered, where they're serving idols, where they're worshiping idols and being completely consumed by the culture. From there, you will seek Yahweh your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and all your soul. You see, even there in the midst of the chaos, God says from right there is the place I want you to turn back to me from. You don't have to clean up your act first. You don't have to, you know, I hear people all the time, well, well, so-and-so needs to get their heart right before they come back to church. Where in the world are they gonna do that if they don't come to church? Where in the world can you go to? Any other place in the world you can go to to get your heart right, if not the church, before you qualify to come to church. God forbid. And may that never be the message that we're putting out there. God says, from there you will seek me and you will find me not when you clean yourself up, not when you get everything figured out first, but from there, from in the midst of your chaos, that's where God sees you. And that's where God will hear your cry. In fact, look at verse 31. Why would I I do this? For Yahweh, your God, is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant. God will not forget his own. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion unto the day of Christ. So beloved, don't doubt his goodness. Don't doubt his mercy. Don't, Don't fall for the lie that says, I've sinned too much, I can't come back. Don't fall for any of that. Those are all lies to keep you in the muck Wherever you are, whatever you've done, turn back to God, I beg you. You Say, where do I go for that? That's what we find in verses 15 and 16, that if we're gonna turn back to God, we turn to him humbly, we turn to him confidently, but we must also turn to him personally. Look what he says in verse 15 and 16 of our text. He says, now my eyes will be opened and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Now, what place is he talking about? He's he's talking about the temple, right? And so this place, for now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my hearts will be there for all time. It's interesting, though, the way he's wording this and the words that he uses. Notice what he's saying here is that the purpose of the temple is not so that the temple itself will be the place, but he's saying that if you come here now, my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Why? For now, For now. I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there. Beloved, what made the temple sacred was not the stones, it was not the gold, it was not the wood, but it was the presence of God. And one of the mistakes that the Israelites made was that they began worshiping the temple instead of worshiping the God of the temple. In fact, that's one of the major themes of Jeremiah is that they thought that no matter what they did, no matter how bad it got, no matter how bad we got, it didn't matter because the temple is in Jerusalem and God is never gonna destroy the city that has the temple in it. And God proved them wrong, didn't he? In fact, that temple was torn apart brick by brick. Not a single brick was standing. Do you realize the ruins today of the temple are not the ruins of Solomon's temple? They're the ruins of Herod's temple. It's not the original temple. The original temple is gone, never to be rebuilt. And so it was completely destroyed. And that's exactly what happened. He destroyed them. He says, My eyes and my heart will be there. Again, how big is the Old Testament? It's huge, right? You know how many times that God talks about his heart? Not very many. Not very many. In other words, he's saying, when you come back to me, come back not to some beautiful building, come back to not some uh, ceremony, come back not to some ritual, but come back to me. Come back to my very presence, come back to the very heart of God. And this is perhaps the saddest part of the history of Israel. You know, it wasn't necessarily the rituals and the sacrifices and the ceremonies that they rejected. They were were doing those up until the day of Jesus. In fact, even to this day, they're still doing some of those things. But they rejected God. God. They walked away from God himself. Even their performance of worship, all of those things. But they forgot one thing, they they forgot God. And beloved, I hear people all the time who say something like, well, I think I'm gonna, I need to get back in church. I need to, I want to get back to this. Or I hear people say all the time, you know, Randy, if we would just do it this way, the way it used to be done, boy, that would just open up the floodgates of God or whatever. Beloved, God is not inviting us to turn back to something. He's inviting us to turn back to him. It is God we turn back to. And don't mistake worshiping the church or the programs of the church or the functions of the church, don't mistake worshiping those for worshiping the God of the church. Don't fall into that trap. Because just like the days of Jeremiah, you will grow prideful in those things. And it will cause issues. And that's the saddest part of the nation of Israel. Yeah, they returned back to the rituals. Yeah, they returned back to all of that other stuff. But they never turned back to God. Not completely. Yeah, they had a few minor revivals here and there, but they never really turned back to God. In fact, I want you to turn to the very end of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 36. Do you remember at the very first of the sermon that I told you that the book of Chronicles is the last book of the Old Testament, the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now I know some of you were wondering, why in the world do I need to know that? I don't read the Hebrew Bible. True, true. But because the English Bible has rearranged it, there's a connection here that you don't see. And I want you to see this connection See that the question is I mean I mean Israel has has turned away from God now God is inviting them to turn back and he's saying that my presence will be here you I, here is where you can find me if you will turn to me here is where you can find me and yet you read the book of chronicles you get to the very end and what you find is uncertainty what you find is unfulfilled promise so it seems You find a nation with no king. You find a nation that is still in a foreign land under judgment. You find a nation that has refused to turn back to God, but are now being allowed to return to their land. And the question is, at the end of the Old Testament, what about the covenant of God? What about the promises of God? What about salvation? We have no temple. We have no king. We barely have a land. We're under a foreign power. We're under oppression. What about salvation? And I want you to notice that at the very end of the Hebrew Bible, you read this proclamation by Cyrus. And I'm not going to read it all. But look at the very last sentence. Whoever is among you of all his people, may Yahweh his God be with him. Those are the last words you read. And the Old Testament. You say, why is that significant? Because that is asking a question Will God be with his people? Well, oh, beloved, guess what? That's what you read on the last page of the Old Testament, but then let's look at what we read on the first page of the New Testament. And what happens? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, which they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. The very last line of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, you read, will the Lord God be with his people? And the very first page of the New Testament, you turn the page and you read, that the virgin bears a son and his name is God with us. Isn't that cool? Amen. And beloved, if you want to turn back to God, the promise is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you want to turn back to God, you turn to him through Jesus Christ Christ. The promise is is that when we turn to God, He will respond to us. Not return to the church per se. Not when we start going to small group, not when we start doing although all of those things are good. Don't get me wrong. But beloved, the promise is that when we turn back to God, He will respond with these promises. Don't worship the church. Don't worship a form of the church. Instead, turn to the head of the church, who is Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us. That's why we don't have a temple today. We are the temple. The spirit of God, the presence of God dwells in us. You could destroy this building tomorrow and Calvary Baptist Church would still be Calvary Baptist Church. Because this building is not a temple. This is not the house of God. We are the house of God. And so if you turn back to Jesus Christ, he will hear you, he will forgive you, and he will heal your greatest need, sin, and death. So God gave us three attitudes this morning that we are to seek him with. We are to seek him, turn to him humbly, turn to him confidently, and turn to him Personally And beloved, I pray that you are doing that. I pray that you are finding yourself this morning in a place that where if you know you have been disobedient to God, you know perhaps right now you are under the disciplining hand of God. You know that wherever you are in the midst of your chaos, you can turn back to God right now. And he will hear you. He will forgive you. And he will give you the healing from sin and death that you need. So, beloved, this morning, I beg you, That's if that's what you need this morning, I beg you to come. And you can have true spiritual freedom. Political freedom is great. I love political freedom. I'm so glad that we don't have to worry about our government coming in here and shooting us down. I'd still be here even if we did have to worry about it. But, Beloved, what happens if that day goes away? Do you want, is political freedom all you want? Are you satisfied with that? Or do you want real freedom in Jesus Christ? And the great thing about real freedom is that you can be in prison. You can be in the midst of all kinds of persecution. You can, you can have everything taken away from you and yet you will still have the freedom that Christ gives you. No one can take that away. So will you come to Jesus Christ this morning? He came and lived a perfect life, the righteousness that you need, earning it before God. And then he died on the cross and penalty of your sins. And then he raised on the third day so that you could have new life in him. And that's where true freedom comes from. If you don't know Christ this morning, I pray you'd find true freedom before we leave here. If you're here this morning, you're under the disciplining hand of God. You're being chastised by God. There's chaos in your life. I pray in the midst of that chaos, you will turn back to him and you'll find the restoration to the blessings of the covenant that you need. Whatever you need, I invite you to come. Our Father, we thank you for these wonderful blessings and principles that you've given us. and Lord, I pray this morning, if there's one here who does not know true freedom, they do not know what it is to be free from sin and free from death and have the joy of everlasting life, Lord, I pray that they would come this morning. Lord, maybe there's one here this morning who is under the chastising hand of God. They, their, their life is in chaos right now. And Lord, they don't know if they can turn to you. Maybe they don't even know how to turn to you. I pray that they would do so, that you would teach them and that you would work in their lives, whatever the need is. We pray you would do your work in the lives of your people this morning. Let's stand together. I'm gonna ask you just to bow your heads for a few moments as our musicians play, as you reflect on what all has been said this morning, the principles of the word. Maybe you're here and you find yourself in a life of chaos and you know that chaos is being caused by your own disobedience. Maybe you have succumbed to a more cultural, civic, vague idea of Christianity, but you never really turned to Christ. I pray this morning, the Lord will do his work in you.